KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. Think back to the start of this pandemic. I don't think any of us could have imagined the year we've had, the number of people we've lost, not being able to hug parents and grandparents or friends, kids not being able to go to school not being able to eat inside at a restaurant or hop on an airplane and go wherever we'd like to go. But there is finally light at the end of this horrific COVID tunnel. It is March 2021, and there are now a number of vaccines out there and more coming down the pike. We've gotten a lot of questions from listeners about those vaccines and about where we are in this pandemic timeline. So I sat down with Dr. Brian McDonough for an hour to talk about the vaccination effort and the important things you need to know before and after you get vaccinated. We made a full hour-long special that's airing on the radio, and we're also putting it out right here on the podcast. So this is The Race to Vaccinate, presented by Independence Blue Cross. I'm Carol McKenzie, and I'm here with Dr. Brian McDonough, KYW's medical editor. Hi again, Dr. Brian. Hi, Carol. So we put out the call for questions. We asked people to call us with their questions, and we got a ton of them, more than half of them for people who wanted to know more information about what they are and aren't supposed to do uh, right after they get vaccinated and right before they get vaccinated. The first question most people had was about pain. And we've all heard this, Dr. Brian, the shot goes in your arm into the muscle and it's common to feel soreness or stiffness in the arm after you get vaccinated. Why? Why? Why does that happen? It's normally just from the actual injection. The fact you have a needle put in there and and it goes into the muscle, that's enough for some people to cause irritation and inflammation. You know, your body kind of goes, wait a minute, something that shouldn't be there is just pricked my arm and, and it reacts occasionally and rarely because people who do this are usually quite good at it. It may be possible that some of the vaccine like didn't go directly into the muscle, but the way they are almost pre-supplied and pre-set up these vaccines, it's pretty much impossible to mess that up. So the pain you're really experiencing is more from that initial injection and your body's reaction. My cousin's a nurse and he told his mom to just keep moving her arm. Does that help? It really does. It's funny. You say that, but that's what you do. Like some people get carried away. They're just doing it all day. Like it's just, you don't want to keep it frozen. You just move it around and it, and it can help. But honestly, some people are going to get it worse than others. Some people, I've had both people, I've had people go, I didn't get any reaction. You know, I'm worried about that. Should I have had more? And other people are like, this is annoying. Um, warm compresses, those types of things, they can help if it does irritate you. Elaine from Monco and Brenda from Philly and a lot of other people wanted to know if it's okay to take something to help with the arm pain, like ibuprofen, acetaminophen, aspirin. Are we, can we take that? You probably don't want to. I think the thing is, uh, in fact, Dr. Paul Offit from Children's Hospital, who's you know, our local expert on vaccines, he said it, it probably is not going to stop your reaction, your in, your ability to fight the, you know, the infection. But if possible, you don't want to take anything that has an anti-inflammatory effect. The one that I would really avoid would be ibuprofen because that directly would do it. But again, if you've taken ibuprofen or acetaminophen, I would not be overly stressed out about it because any impact it has is minor. So Marianne called us and said she took acetaminophen before she got her vaccine and then was told she shouldn't have done that. Should she be concerned? Is she still protected then? 
She shouldn't. Um, it's a very small impact. What I think they're trying to tell people is let's try to avoid things if possible. And we want to, you know, we, we're learning about the vaccine as we go, but we have, a, you know, years of all sorts of vaccines that we've been giving. And, and that is, that's not something that's a major factor. It's hard though, because some of these side effects after you get the vaccine, people report feeling pretty miserable for a day or two. And, and that's the point. If you're at a point where you know, you're starting to get a temperature, things are starting to happen, I think you take care of yourself and not be overly concerned about that. Make yourself feel comfortable. I think what they're trying to do is say that just, just don't think, well, you know, sometimes I'll take this in advance. So if there's any problems, I can avoid it. I wouldn't do that. Okay. We got a lot of questions from people who have recovered from COVID. Uh, James from Northeast Philly wanted to know how long you should wait to get vaccinated if you've had COVID. How long should your recovery be before you get a shot? Now, the CDC has gone back and forth on this, as many of the things with COVID kind of learned as we go. Now they're saying about five days after you feel better, you can get it. The one group that I would be more concerned about and I would talk with my doctor is if you've been hospitalized and you've gotten plasma or you've gotten any of those cocktails, you know, with the, that helps you with your antibodies, that's something I would check with your doctor. But if you were just home, get COVID, minimal symptoms, you got through it, um, really after you're clear of the fever and everything, about five days later, you can get the vaccine. We want people to get the vaccine. So Jay from Northeast Philly said he heard that drinking lots of water 24 to 48 hours before getting the vaccine can eliminate some of the side effects. Is that is that true? It probably won't eliminate the side effects. There's no studies on it. But I will tell you, drinking lots of water is always a good thing. So if it makes you feel better and you've got more fluid in your system, I think you'll feel better. But who knows? If it helps, why not? Yeah, why not? Um Allergy season. Um, maybe you have allergies, maybe you have a cold, or maybe you have just some other virus that you're not feeling so great. Does that change whether or not you should get a vaccine? If you're allergic to things in the environment, wouldn't even be concerned about that. I would still get the vaccine. Clearly, you'll want to. The vaccine will not make your, you know, spring allergies worse or do anything like that. If you have allergic to specific medications, I really wouldn't worry about that. There are some people who are allergic to uh, some of the byproducts in producing a vaccine that we'd have to look at. But otherwise, you know, the allergies, I get sniffles, this and that, I, I would get the vaccine. Now, if you're feeling very sick or under the weather, that probably would be when you don't want to get the vaccine. Because think about it, if you, the vaccine might cause some symptoms and you already have them, why do you want to make it worse? But, you know, we're so eager to get people the protection. I, I would, you know, I'd have a, a really high threshold to not get the vaccine if I'm scheduled. What if you get sick between shots? If you get sick with COVID between shots, we want to make sure you're past that period of COVID. That can happen. In other words, when you get your vaccine, for the first couple of weeks after you get the vaccine, you're, you're, you're building up your protection over time. So let's say you get the vaccine, and you go, I'm going to go out now because I have the vaccine. Not a smart move, but you just say, I'm going to do that. You then get exposed. You would have to get through COVID and be clear of it before the next dose. So that that would be one of those things like we were talking about earlier. You'd want to be at least, you know, five days past the ends of symptoms, the end of fever. And there's another reason for it. You don't want to be spreading COVID to others who are giving the vaccine in a setting like that as well. Yeah. 
We'll get back to a few more questions that the listener sent in in just a minute. But Doc, first we want to ask you about the three different vaccines that we have right now, Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J. So we're at the point where a lot of people have gotten a shot of something, or you may know someone who's gotten a shot of something. Does it matter which vaccine people get? Is there an advantage or disadvantage to, let's say, the Pfizer and Moderna, which are two-shot regimens, and J&J, which is the one-shot? I would recommend as, as much as I've ever recommended anything, go for the first opportunity you have, because what you want is that protection. I wouldn't sit back and go, hmm, I've heard this one's better or that one has side effects or just get the vaccine. Um, everybody's individual. But one thing we know is the quicker you get that vaccine in you, the better. Yeah. And because we're hearing different numbers for the effectiveness of the vaccines, I mean, Pfizer, Moderna, 95 and 94 percent and J&J, I've seen anywhere from like 66 to 72 And I think people go, oh, I mean, 95% is extraordinary for a vaccine, but that's what we got first. So people hear J&J go like, I don't know, is it if it works as well? Carol, that's a great question. And I think a lot of people have that question. And, you know, when it initially came out, I remember when it was Pfizer first. And when Pfizer came out, it was like 94, 95%. I was like, oh, my gosh, I've never seen a vaccine like this. I'm used to the flu vaccine. And if you really look at it, Many years, it's between 40 and 60%. I mean, that's that's as good as it gets. And we're happy with that because what we realize is, well, you're cutting it down in the community and you're giving people a layer of protection so that if they get the flu, they're not getting the serious impact of the flu. Well, it's the same thing with COVID. Any of those vaccines, all three, are going to, by and large, and the vast majority of people, stop you from being hospitalized and stop you from being in the ICU. And I will tell you, caring for patients before the vaccine. I always was protective and, you know, we dressed, went through everything, but I was always scared. The reason I was dressing, you know, in the garage and sleeping in the basement was I didn't know if I or people I love would end up in an ICU. And this is what these vaccines are doing. They're taking that fear away. You may get the virus. I mean, if you may get it if it's 72%, 68%. You could get it, but you'll be more or less asymptomatic. You'll almost get what a 22-year-old would get, but a 22-year-old who doesn't have to worry about some of these long-haul things. It really is protective. So that's why I like them all. Well, how did you do with it? Which one, do you mind me asking which one did you get and how did you feel? Well, I got the first one. So I got Pfizer. And um, honestly, I'm one of those people that go, gee, I didn't have much of a reaction. Am I going to be protected? Because that's your other thing. You're like a part of me said, boy, except for my my arm hurting, I really wish I had had a temperature or something because did my body react to it. And then, of course, you read these reports, well, the older you get, you don't necessarily have a strong reaction. And I'm going, oh, great. Now I'm in that older group that didn't have a strong reaction. <laughs> but the reality is, once you get it, it isn't associated with how sick you get, how you feel. So I actually did well. But I always tell patients, you know, don't rely on my experience. I want to be really objective and say, you know, you might not feel well. And I know people, you know, without saying who they are, but people who have had, you know, several days when they felt really horrible and then boom, it's over they feel better. Why two shots for Pfizer and Moderna and only one shot for J&J? I think that's initially how they studied it. I wouldn't be surprised down the road if that may change. But right now with the information they have, they, they saw that the first dose gets you to like the 55, 60%. So when they gave the second one, that got you to 95%. You may see down the road that they change that, but you don't change midstream because you got to go based on the evidence. So we've gotten a few questions from listeners about how the vaccine might react with other medicines or treatments. Uh, Deborah says she needs to 
get a steroid injection. Is there anything she needs to know about interactions between the vaccine and medicines like steroids? Most medications, I say not a big deal. A steroid, you want to check with your doctor only because depending on why you're getting it, it can impact your immune system and an immune system response. And that's, I usually don't go to that check with your doctor, but on something like that, I would double check because why are you on it? Um, What you don't want to do, and I tell people this, is don't stop whatever you're taking because of the vaccine unless you're told to. So I've had people say, well, I won't take my blood pressure pills that morning. No, 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 no. What we don't want to have you do is get the vaccine and then your pressure skyrockets or your your blood thinner that you're using for a regular heartbeat. You don't take, you know, we don't want to do that. We got a few questions about other vaccines. Olivia asked about the shingles vaccine. So she got her first shingles shot in November. She's supposed to get her next one next month. And what she wants to know is if she needs to wrap up the shingles vaccine before she gets a coronavirus vaccine. It's a great question. It's actually I had a patient who was getting the shingles vaccine. And I had I looked it up myself because I was like, oh, my gosh, this is one I haven't really thought of. They would rather you wait 14 days between another vaccine and the COVID vaccine. Now, what I would tell you is, given a choice, I would put the COVID vaccine ahead of any other vaccine you can within reason, because COVID is the one, as we've talked earlier, that can save your life. So, you know, yes, I wouldn't want to have an attack of shingles, you know, and and have to deal with all that pain. But given a choice of shingles versus COVID, I'll take shingles every day. So that's kind of where I would say go with that vaccine first. But given that 14 day spread. Surgery and other invasive procedures. Uh, Some people wanted to know about scheduling medical procedures around the vaccine, things like maybe even colonoscopies, mammograms to maybe even something more invasive. I would not build anything around or not around the vaccine. I'd follow my own schedule and do it. So if you got COVID vaccine, you could have another test the next day. The only thing you got in your mind, think, is if if you feel a little under the weather, you know, you you got the vaccine and now you're going to be dehydrated, you're going to be, you know, getting a prep, but that'd be something, a personal decision, but there's no real medical reason not to. I would do the COVID first. Again, I'm all for screening for colon cancer, breast cancer, all the things, but I'd want to make sure I got, you know, got the vaccine in at a reasonable time and not push it way out. When you're on the list and you get the appointment, you kind of got to grab it. So we got a few questions about mammograms and uh, concerns about lymph node swelling from the vaccine. So Betty called us from West Philadelphia. She was told that she can't get a a mammogram uh, until six weeks after her second COVID shot. Does that sound right to you? That sounds like a long time. No, that is right. And the reason they're saying that is one of the rare side effects of faking out the body is your body actually builds lymph nodes. It builds a a drainage system to get rid of infection. So if your body thinks there's an infection, these lymph nodes can kind of pop up and people will feel a node under their arm or whatever. Well, if you think about a mammogram, part of the breast tissue extends into the axilla under the arm. So that part of the breast tissue is under the arm. So when you do a mammogram, if the person reading it sees a lymph node, that all of a sudden brings you into the path of, oh my gosh, is that lymph node a sign of cancer? And then you have to have a biopsy. And so to avoid all those questions and concerns, and and believe me, everybody's anxious to begin with. And you have something like that on top of the anxiety of COVID, you know, it, it really would be stressful. They say, just avoid it for six weeks. We don't want to put them off indefinitely. And that's one of the big things for in this pandemic. We just don't want to fall into the trap of not doing things. But 
with that vaccine, that would be something that I would definitely hold off. And that's actually the American College of Obstetrics Gynecology, family physicians, they've all ruled the same way on it and said, better just to avoid it at that time. So Dr. Brian, you know, people want to do what they can do to keep themselves safe, their families safe, but a lot of people are worried about the safety of these vaccines because they were developed so fast. In fact, you know, the program was called Warp Speed, which gives you an idea of what we're talking about here. So how is it possible for the companies to make these vaccines so quickly after the pandemic began? Well, one of the things is these mRNA vaccines, believe it or not, a lot of the legwork has been done for the past decade. Because if you remember MERS and SARS and these other things, they kind of like were a warning that things were coming along in their way. And so scientists and researchers were starting to develop different types of vaccines at that time. So what happened was when this coronavirus was identified, they said, wait a minute, this is very similar to those others. We can take that work and speed it up. A lot of what was initially done before you really tried it out in people was already being done. You know, and of course you get the politicians in it, they call it warp speed and you know, it becomes this dramatic big blown up thing. But the reality was those vaccines were on their way, not to minimize what was done. It has been incredible that, you know, I did not think we would have them as fast as we did. But that being said, they, they were developed and knowing the way they're made, the Pfizer and Moderna in particular, they're made in such a way that they're really not giving you anything that can harm you to a large extent. I don't anticipate, you know, as I say, people, we're not going to get a third year or something as a result of this. I think it's going to be, by and large, very safe, especially when you compare it to getting the virus. The other term we've heard a lot of, emergency use approval. And I think, you know, emergency use makes people think that perhaps corners were cut or didn't go, you know, through the full testing safety protocols that most vaccines or other medicines do. And I think you're right. Uh, a lot of people go, wait a minute, this is, this is fast. And it is. And I will tell you, if they really had you know, all the time in the world, they probably would have taken two years. We probably would already know about testing in children and we would have known this and that. You know, we're finding things out. So what, if you watch what they're doing, they're only giving it to the groups of people that they tested. Now we're far enough down the road. And with so many people filling out, I mean, if you've done it, a lot of people get the app and you fill out and you answer questions, they probably have more information about these vaccines in a short period of time than they probably have any vaccines that they've used in the past. I've had people say to me that they're afraid that the companies have fudged the results to make their vaccines look better. Can that happen? Is that possible? Oh, it's certainly possible. I would think if I, well, first of all, I was running a company, I wouldn't fudge results. But if I was going to, this is not a case where you'd fudge results because the eyes of the world are on you. And also remember, when they get the, they go for the approval, you then have independent scientists come in. That's the beauty of it. They come in and they evaluate it. So somebody has nothing to do with it, nothing to gain is evaluating it. So they're not like holding company stock or those kind of things. Right. And a lot of these are blind, aren't they? I mean, they are blind studies that the companies don't even know who got the shot, who got the placebo and what the right. results are until the end. Yeah. They take, they're taking away what they call the bias. Because let's face it, if this is your vaccine and you help develop it, you really want it to be the one just out of a point of pride. Well, you got to eliminate that. Tough luck. Your vaccine wasn't one of the ones selected. Well, fine. That's the way you have to do it. We got to take a quick break before we come back to the race to vaccinate presented by Independence Blue Cross. 
So we're back on the race to vaccinate presented by Independence Blue Cross. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we're asking some of your questions about the vaccine to Dr. Brian McDonough, our medical editor here at KYW News Radio. Dr. Brian, thanks again for being with us. I've heard something from a few people now that I want to run by you. It's about uh, how the guidance from federal health officials over the past year have changed a lot. First, they said, don't wear masks. Now they say, you got to wear a mask because it stops the spread. It's the best thing you can do. But there's a lot of frustration from people who I think one got exhausted from trying to keep up with all the changing information. But I also think that that changing information has led to somewhat of a, a distrust or maybe a feeling that either scientists don't know what they're talking about or aren't really giving us the truth. And I'm wondering what your thought is about that and what the general thought is in the medical community when you're when you're facing this kind of distrust from people? Yeah, um, I, well, first of all, the thing, the overall picture here, and I don't blame people. It took me a long time as a doctor to figure it out is I learned it with estrogen um, years ago with estrogen at menopause. And, you know, early in my career, you take estrogen 100%, it'll change your life, it's wonderful. Then there was this women's health study which showed that estrogen may not be as safe. And then they said, don't take estrogen. Then they came back saying you could take it different ways. And I watched during the course of my career as the estrogen discussion continued over 20 years, this and that. What we're seeing with this is rapid knowledge and learning it fast. Uh, So let's take a look, I'll give you an example, masks. My theory, I think initially, because I was working in a hospital and we had people with COVID, was nobody had enough masks. We just didn't have enough. Like the doctors didn't have enough. The nurses didn't have enough. We were running out. When the, I think when, the, when they came out with their first recommendations, their first recommendations were wear masks if you're in front of someone with COVID. But in the general public, there's really not a need to wear a mask because if you wear a mask, you're probably not coming across somebody with COVID. Certain people seized on to that and said the doctors didn't know, the scientists didn't know, they told people not to wear masks. But what they said was not everybody has to wear it. Now, as they knew, first of all, more masks were being made and the number of cases were going up in the community, they said, wait a minute, we better get more people to wear masks because there's a greater chance that people are going to bump into someone who has COVID. So that's how that whole mask controversy began. But for whatever reason, more than any other aspect of this, that became the source of don't trust the scientists. Well, I w- I've been saying from the very beginning, it's called a medical practice for a reason. We're learning. If you think you know everything as a doctor, you're a fool. If you think you know everything, you're going to miss the newest news, the newest information. And I'm old enough that I saw it with HIV. It was a very similar situation, a very frightening illness. It was limited to a high-risk group. But if you remember, people were like, you can't play sports, you can't do this, you can't do that. And it was all because of fear. And that was the only other time in my career where politics got involved in healthcare. And I think when you have that, you run into people with all due respect who don't really know a lot about science and their background. It'd be like me giving the financial advice. You don't want to be giving financial advice. Well, they, they do the best they can but they mess up. And then what happens is you have mixed messages. So I don't blame people. They're going like, who the heck knows what's going on? Because depending on who you listen to, like KYW is great because KYW is news. You got to get both sides of the story. It's the traditional way news was always done. 
but I don't have to tell most of the public knows that years ago, there was a show called A Current Affair, which said, hey, we can make money by being dramatic. And then all of a sudden, you got a you know, thousand cable stations. And a lot of people said, I'm going to get this audience. I'll get that audience. I'll play to them. And it's opinion rather than news under the umbrella of news. And then people don't know what to believe. So I think we've tried to be consistent and to say, I don't know, but this is what we do know. And I think people will take that, but they just get overwhelmed. They just go, I can't take any more because they hear too many thoughts. And your normal fear is going to be, you know, it's going to be centered around, I don't want to do anything that puts my family at risk. And I certainly would like to kind of not even think about this virus because it's frightening. And all those things come together. And that's why I think we have so many people stressed out, you know, and talking about all the other social impacts of this virus, which uh, are, are quite different. Yeah, unfortunately, though, that kind of distrust translates into whether or not people trust the vaccine. And polls have shown there is a political divide when it comes to who's inclined to get the vaccine and who's not inclined to get the vaccine. Yeah, Carolyn. And the way I've approached it is I want people to make their own choice. I really believe it's important to make your own choice. And the reason I say that is because I think people need a sense of power when it comes to their own health care. That's been my philosophy all along in caring for people about anything. I want people, I know the choice I want, but I do a disservice if I tell people what I want for them. I can make my recommendation and I will tell everybody, I want you to get the vaccine because I know the other side of it. But that being said, I want people to understand all they can about it. And the other thing about vaccines, which is really important to talk about, is there's a good reason why a lot of people don't like vaccines, because their people in these groups were experimented upon. African-American community, we know that. People I know who came from Puerto Rico, a lot of medications were tested in Puerto Rico on families who just trusted their, their doctors and, and their scientists. So it isn't like the medical community didn't earn this. If you do those things and then you expect everybody to trust you, well, you know, who's kidding who? There, there will be doubt. So I think what's happening and we're seeing in our community, for instance, the black physicians going out, people who are trusted, church groups, people who are more in the community talking about it is the way to go. And then people will make their own decision. Yeah, they've made tremendous headway in cutting down on vaccine hesitancy and getting shots into arms. It's been quite amazing. Um, So the other thing we know about viruses, viruses mutate. But now we're starting to hear about all these different variants from all over the globe. And we've gotten a bunch of questions from our listeners about that. So before we get to those questions, though, can you explain what it means when we say the virus is mutating and why does that concern you? If you think about it, the virus basically has one job. That's to get to as many people as it can because that's how it thrives and it grows. So if people develop ways to fight the virus, the virus is going to find a way to outsmart the thing that kills it. And that's why it mutates. So what happens is the virus might try 70 mutations, a thousand mutations, but one, two or three of them are going to be really good and let them go to a lot of people. So you think about it, you're a virus you mutate and you have a bad mutation, you die and we never hear from you again. If you're a virus that mutates with something good, you start popping up and you go from person to person. So if you look at these resistant strains right now, they don't seem to be more aggressive in how they attack because COVID is as nasty as it gets, but where they're aggressive is they spread faster. So what you're getting is 
the virus mutations that spread faster are moving faster because they are. And that's why we're pushing so hard telling people whether you've been vaccinated or not, wear masks, because that stops that spread. So when I see Texas or Florida, I just cringe because I know viruses are going, oh my God, this is amazing. I got a bunch of people who are not going to wear masks uh, and they're, and they're going to jump from person to person. And, th- and that's how the mutations start. Yeah, there have been some studies that uh, about the virus mutating within the patient, how they've taken samples and found different variants within one patient, which is very Stephen King-like. I mean, it is horrifying when you think about how quickly it can adapt. And then it, it brings up the next question, how effective are the vaccines against these variants? What we're realizing is the vaccines are still effective, but they want to keep testing. They want to make sure that they continue to test people and see if they change. That's why this contact tracing and thing is so important because they want to find out where and how the vaccines are working and what they're not working against. So right now it's good, but we don't we do anticipate that you know they're going to get smart and they're going to change. We, stay, we have to stay one step ahead. Yeah, Carolyn from Philadelphia uh, called us and she asked a question about that vaccines and variants and basically if there's one vaccine that's more effective at this point against these mutations? I don't think there is. I think they're all equally effective. There's not one that's like taking the lead. Um, I do envision a time when we'll probably have to have booster shots based on those things and we'll do that. So Deborah from Philly called in with a pretty interesting question. She wants to know, how are the variants triggered? Does the virus mutate because of something in the environment, something in a person's system? Um, why are there different mutations on different continents? Um, are there little local details that kind of embed themselves in these mutations or, or trigger them? Probably all of the above. Um, when it's in the one person, and I remember reading the case of the individual, they were hospitalized for like months in an ICU and stuff, and it, and it changed. What it was reacting to was the different treatments that were being given to the virus, given to fight the virus. So they gave something and then, you know, it got most of it and then some of it lasted. We see that with, think about it, we think we see that with antibiotics a lot. Um, the more you use an antibiotic, the, the, the bacteria get smart and they change. Well, viruses move much faster than bacteria. Bacteria, unfortunately, they're kind of like slow. So they do change, but it takes them a long time. Viruses react like the COVID, coronavirus reacts like a, in, in months. That's why like the common cold that we always talk about not being able to cure, it's always changing. Because if not, enough of us would have gotten the cold and then it would have died out. It just changes and gets to the next version. And that's really what it does. So it's all those factors combined. So we got a couple questions about uh, what the vaccine could mean for family planning. Allison from Downingtown, Bonnie from Allentown, both wanted to know if there are concerns for women who want to have children. Uh, is there anything they should know ab- about that? Is it safe to get the vaccine? It's been tested and it's safe. There was something that got all over social media because I had a lot of my a lot of younger patients in their twenties, you know, who were you know thinking about having children and go, questioning. Said, "I don't want this to affect fertility." So again, I I thought, well, how would it affect fertility? I've got to figure out what's going on. There was nothing there, and studies have shown there's nothing there. Now, if you're pregnant and you get COVID, that's problematic because for a lot of reasons, but one of the things is when you're pregnant and get COVID, or even if you're not pregnant and get COVID, it can affect blood clotting and things. And that can be a problem if you're pregnant and you bleed and you have issues like that. But as far as family planning, um, 
if you're thinking of having a child, the you know the quicker you get the, can get the COVID vaccine, I would. So you're not going to get the natural COVID uh, and be affected by that. There is in, a rumor going around about men too that it could make men impotent. Yeah, and, you know, and these things come out, and and, and obviously it, they're going to get attention because you you, know, you make the most dramatic comments, and that comment's going to do it. But there's nothing to prove that either. So let's talk about kids. Pfizer started uh, testing, it's going to start testing its vaccine in kids 12 to 15, already authorized for 16 and up. Moderna has just started testing its vaccine in in children, young kids, six months to 11 years old. So can you explain this next phase for us? How, what do these tests look like and how soon will we know? Do you think that these vaccines could, could be approved for young kids before school starts next in the fall? Well, there's two ways of looking at it. If you think about, there clearly can be complications in young children. You go to children's hospital, you'll see cases where certain kids will have uh, immune reactions where it's very aggressive and it can cause a syndrome, but it's very rare in children. I think the reason they're testing it more in children now is thinking that they can decrease the exposure for adults. So are you giving a vaccine to protect the person who could be at risk, or are you doing it more for another group of people? So you got to look at the ethics of that, the reasons for that. That being said, because these viruses can change and mutate, it's smart to test these things to find out if we had to go in that direction, we have information to do it. So I don't think it's a lock that, you know, you're going to start having COVID vaccines in, in infants, but I think it's more of a lock. You're going to see it in 12 and over because that spread seems to be greater in that group. So that's one where, and you know, again, I mentioned Dr. Paul Offit's name earlier. There's a lot of the great work that's been done with vaccines has been done in infants and small children because a lot of them are vaccinated. So they have more experience vaccinating babies than we have vaccinating adults. So I actually believe the information they'll get, they'll be able to work on quite well. So Dr. McDonough, the CDC has put out some new guidelines about what's next. A lot of uh, questions that listeners sent in to us were about life after the pandemic. I mean, we are all ready to get on with life after this pandemic. Um, One of the most common questions was, how long does the vaccine last? Are we going to have to get another vaccine at some point? Is this going to be something like you think you get the flu shot one month, the next month you get your COVID shot? I anticipate that's the direction we're heading, that we have no official CDC guidelines or guidance on that. But I would think this virus certainly can peter out and it, and it could go down. But I, my feeling is it, it's got some staying power. We've already seen that. So I would anticipate at least for a period of time, we may have to get boosters. But again, it depends on how long these initial vaccines work and how effective they are. So after you're vaccinated and you're two weeks out from the last shot, whichever that is, you're protected. But does that prevent you from spreading COVID to someone else who's not been vaccinated? No, it doesn't. And it brings up a funny story. You know, like most people, I listen to KYW. So I had done an interview with Dave Uram about ballparks and going back to games. And I had told him, you know, really hesitant. If you're going to do it, you got to wear a mask. We've got a period of time. And I did my typical what I talk about as a doctor. Well, we're listening one morning, my wife's listening, and, and they said, you know, so-and-so says we can't wait. You know, Joe Girardi says we can't wait, but Dr. Brian McDonough says, my wife said, you are the most annoying person. You're such a doubter. And I said, well, I'm trying not to be a doubter, but what I'm trying to explain is 
you still can carry the virus. Like, so you're going to get more asymptomatic carriers out there. So you're really wearing the mask for others. Until we get to that herd immunity point, we're going to still need to wear masks. So when you, know, if you go to a game and you've been vaccinated, still be careful. You don't want to get the virus yourself, but wear the mask for others. Joseph from Northeast Philly uh, asked a follow-up about this. At what point do we get to herd immunity? And you touched on this just a few minutes ago. Is there hope that we won't then need further vaccination? So let's start with herd immunity. What is it and what point do we get there? Well, this is a case where politics kind of messed up the concept of herd immunity. Herd immunity in definition, as per, let's say, Dr. Scott Atlas, who was in the news months ago, was that the more people who become infected with something, the less it can spread because it's made its way through the community and people have built antibodies. Now, the problem with getting natural herd immunity to something like COVID is that it would take a certain percentage of people to die to get to that point. So if you have 330 million Americans and the death rate is, let's say, 1.5%, who wants to sacrifice 5 million people to get us all protected? But that's the theory of natural herd immunity, that it would happen. Well, fortunately, there's vaccines which fake the body and fake the virus into thinking that somebody has it. You get enough people vaccinated. Once you get to 70 to 80 percent, and I think they're saying 80 percent now, 80 percent of the people have had the vaccine or unfortunately have had COVID. They have antibodies and you got that herd immunity now. That's when I think you hear Dr. Fauci and others saying, you know, I'd be much more comfortable if people were traveling. You can see your relatives for unnecessary travel, those kind of things. Uh, so Jared called in from the suburbs. He just got his first shot and he's curious about how protected he is from day one. What's the answer to that? Day one, you probably don't have that much protection. You're not much different than you were before you went in. It takes a couple of weeks to start building the antibody response. And I always tell patients, I tell people, listen, don't think, you know, hey, I just got the vaccine. I'm going out to dinner tonight. No, 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 don't, because that's the kind of person who could get COVID right after getting the vaccine. What we found is, and we're watching the numbers, if it's, let's say, the Pfizer, which is three weeks to the second dose, at the three-week point, you're probably 55, 60% protected. I've heard some even higher numbers, 75%. But then you get it again. Your booster, two weeks after that, you hit the 95%. So for Pfizer, it's five weeks later. For Moderna, it would be six weeks later because your second shot's four weeks away. And for J&J, it's probably about four weeks. Donna sent us a question. I think a lot of people are probably thinking right now. She works in a doctor's office. She's fully vaccinated, but some of her coworkers aren't getting it. So Donna wants to know what sort of risk level there is when half the office is vaccinated and the other half isn't. I mean, she should be concerned for the staff or for patients. And frankly, that could apply to when we start going back to work. There's a good chance that even if you're vaccinated, we're going to be working with somebody who, who isn't. The person you have to worry about mostly is the person not vaccinated. The problem is going to be when people are further down the road, like kind of let down and they say, oh, I'll take my mask off. Well, the person who's vaccinated could get the virus, but they're not going to get that sick. The person who wasn't could end up in the ICU. And that's the fear. And I, I actually, there's a bioethicist who was at Penn for many years. He's now at NYU Langone. And I asked him this specific question. I said, okay, a lot of people are asking me, 
how long do I have an obligation to wear a mask for these people who chose not to get vaccinated? And he said, when you achieve herd immunity, it's not on you anymore. It's on the other person. Don't feel guilty. You shouldn't have to spend the rest of your life in a mask because somebody else doesn't want to wear a mask and doesn't want to get vaccinated. At that point, if, as long as they've been educated, they made their choice. I find that hard, you know, as a physician to deal with, but, but from an ethical standpoint, there is a point where if someone makes a life choice, that's the risk that they're unfortunately going to run. We all, there are consequences to the choices we make Yeah, in yeah. life across the board. Um, and that, you know, leads into the next question, which is a lot of people want to know if life is ever going to look like it did before this pandemic began. We got a question from a guy who said he's trying to do everything correctly, fully vaccinated. He's still wearing a mask, but as to your point, he wants to know when he'll finally be able to take that mask off for good. I don't know to answer that question. I believe once we achieve the herd immunity, that will be the key to it. But I, that's what I'd wait for. I would wait for the CDC and for guidance. And then I'd probably wait a couple of weeks more <laughs> just to be sure. <laughs> what, I mean, where do you think we are though right now, the timeline of this pandemic? I mean, that's not probably a fair question to ask you, but it kind of, it, it, it ties into all this. It ties into how long we're going to have to wear a mask. Uh, Janice from Schwanksville says, when will we know if it's safe to go to large gatherings? Like she's okay wearing a mask, but she just wants to know when can we go to a concert again? When can we go hang out with a bunch of people who aren't in our household at a restaurant or a bar? Right. I mean, it's all, well, first of all, I, I wouldn't personally consider it until I'm vaccinated. So I would say if you're double vaccinated and you've had that period of time and you feel it's you then pick for yourself, what is a comfortable environment? But you also have to look at who's in your family unit and bubble. Like, are you going to put them at risk if you are exposed to it? It becomes, once you're vaccinated, it's more like you're thinking about the other person more than yourself all the time. And I get it. I mean, most of us are tired of watching movies and seeing TV on Netflix. We, they've seen The Sopranos and Boardwalk Empire. They've seen all the shows and they want to get out of there. And that's the frustration. So I think you pick and choose. You do little things with your family and the people you know who you're protected with, who have been, you know, who have had their vaccines. I would go that path that I'd walk before a man. Dr. Brian, this year has been hard, to say the least. It's been devastating, so much loss. We never probably could have imagined this. And I wonder when you think back to March of last year when all of this started, vaccines were, you know, a distant hope. We were being told to social distance for the first time, which still sounds weird. You know, wear a mask, wash your hands all the time. Um, if you look back, you know, a year from where we are today, what, what would you have told yourself back then? And I guess, would you have wanted to know or is there something you would have wanted to know from this past year that you didn't know then? Well, I am thankful that I didn't know what I know now, because I don't know if I would have had the energy or the reserve to make it. The fact that I'm now seeing light at the end of the tunnel is energizing me. But a year ago, had I not, you know, had I didn't know, and, and again, you know, if you, I've had, I've lost family members, but I've also lost patients and relationships with people and seen that. I've seen how 
other people who haven't gotten COVID, how their lives have changed. I've seen the anxiety, the depression, the, the fact that I think of all these kids who haven't been able to go to school and what that has done to them socially. I think of the, the fact that, you know, I know that, you know, child abuse can be occurring, spousal abuse, and people are drinking too much. And like, I look at all these things as a physician and it's overwhelming because I know all, a lot of the groundwork we've done for so long, it, it's, it's bringing us back. But I also look at some of the positives. Like, for instance, what I take from it is I right before this happened, I had taken like several years of graduate work at a school in Ireland that I did. I did, got a full degree and I brought my family to Ireland to graduate at this advanced age. And it was a wonderful trip. But I didn't realize at that time I took it for granted. We were together. It was a great thing. But over the year, that's been such a great memory because it's the last time we were all together. I mean, the last time, you know, you hug your child and you, all those things. And I think about what people have gone through. So I think a positive is, I don't think I'll ever take anything for granted again. Like, I don't think I'll take for granted going to a ball game with my son. I won't take for granted having the family together for a family dinner, you know, hugging my daughter, all those things we're not going to, I don't think any of us will take for granted. So that's something good about it. But the fact that we all had to suffer and do that. And then I think of the, you know, my problems are nothing compared to the problems of people who don't have someone at their table. You know, how many people don't or and when we talked about frustration and how some people you know, don't seem to care or whatever. Think about the frustration of someone who's lost a family member and they see this, like how, it, how it's got to be infuriating when people are in denial about the virus. And, and there are still people who believe it isn't even a problem. You know, that kind of thing would, would, would frustrate people. So I think from the standpoint of uh, knowing what was going to happen, you know, I, I, mean, I never thought I would be sleeping in a blow up bed in the basement. I mean, like, who, who does that? You know, but, but they were things that we all had to do. And I think what we've gotten out of it, I think, is the knowledge that, you know, we're a lot tougher than we think we are. People are together. I think if you look at I've looked at all the social things that happened in the past year, a lot of the things that happened in Philadelphia and people taking to the streets. If you look at a positive, I think people are far more aware that we're not as different as we think. We're more alike than we think. And that these artificial differences that we I'm better than you, you're better than me. Nobody's better than anybody. We're all the same when it comes to this virus. We have to treasure what we have and treasure each other. So hopefully we take the positives out of this and, and we don't forget, you know, quickly what we've learned. Yeah, crisis just kind of strips everything away, doesn't it? It really strips you down to the essential things of life. And you appreciate those small things, like you said, a hug. You know, I mean, when I do see my friends at socially distanced and we have that urge, like you start to go in to hug them and you realize, oh, I can't do that. And I think the things, you know, some of the things that have stuck with me that are were so hard to watch were freezer trucks. <laughs> you know, makeshift morgues outside of hospitals, the videos of nurses and doctors just pleading with people to be safe and to take it seriously. I, it, it, you, you watch that. And I just, I would sit and cry. People I, I don't know. You know, my son-in-law was in the army and uh, he's out now and he's captain and he did all that, but I always thought of him, you know, thank you for your service and really was and proud of everyone who's done that. But I never thought, honestly, that I'd be in a situation where people were thanking me for what I was doing. Like that, if I, and, and, and I'll be honest with you, I know probably anybody in the Army, Navy, they'll, they'll probably tell you, you really don't 
want to be that person because that means you really are earning something. You could get killed by something, but it, it was really frightening because there was a touch of that when we treated HIV, but it, it still was more removed because it had to be, you had to stick yourself with a needle or whatever, or those types of things. This is more like you could just breathe. You could one false move in your mind, you could get that. And I think that was part of what I think frightened so many people. And for the healthcare workers who went through it, that's the, you know, the, the trauma that they dealt with, especially those who worked, as you talk about, like in ICU settings where people were dying on a regular basis. And, you know, and the thing that I always think of is the worst is usually when I take care of patients in the hospital, the family's around. So the family rallies around the person who's ill and you can help the family as much as you help the person sick. If you, if, as a doctor, if you talk to them about things, those conversations essentially went away. The person's alone in a hospital bed and you're talking to somebody FaceTime on a, it, it, it's gut wrenching that you're the person who is the last person for that family member. It shouldn't be that way. It should be the person they spent their life with or their, their mother, their father, whatever. It shouldn't just be, you know, somebody who's in healthcare who cares, but it's not the same. Well, we owe a debt of gratitude to all of you on the front line, the doctors, the nurses, the first responders who have worked tirelessly and through your own grief and your own pain and your own exhaustion to really get us through this pandemic. And Dr. McDonough, we've heard from so many people who've appreciated hearing you over the past year. I think you've been able to center people and give them some real advice, some helpful advice and kind of like, you know, a voice of, of reason, a voice of calm in this storm. And so I want to thank you on behalf of everyone out there for taking us through this pandemic on the radio, on the podcast. And we, we so appreciate your work and just, we appreciate you being here because we know it's been a hellish year for you. Well, I've always looked at the KOW is a sacred treasure. I mean, it's like 33 years I've been doing this and it's an opportunity every time we reach so many people and just to share honesty, openness and some support. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's, it's wonderful to work for people who say, just tell the truth, you know, try to help as many people as you can. And so I consider myself lucky to be in that position and, and I've always, you know, treasured the opportunity. Uh, although I really can't wait till I'm talking a little bit more about Mediterranean diet, whether shoes hurt you after you don't have the proper arches, I'd, I'd rather be doing that. And I, I can't wait till we return to those things. And then uh, I can get back on kind of more of the nerdy topics. But right now it's important and it will continue as long as it takes. Well, we appreciate it. And, and I as well look forward to getting back to those nerdy topics, if you will. Thank you, Brian, for being with us, Dr. Brian. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Carol. It's been my pleasure. I'm Carol McKenzie. Thanks for listening to The Race to Vaccinate, a KYW news radio in-depth special presented by Independence Blue Cross.